Well, we're in the process of working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, so I invite you to turn your attention there. Uh, in your bulletin, you'll see a handout. We'll give you the fill in the blanks as we go along. You'll also see uh, something that says link group homework. That's our sermon-based small group that we're almost done with, another week or so of that, and then we'll take our summer break. Uh, but uh, we are in chapter 9 today of 1 Corinthians, so I invite you to turn your attention there. Paul, as he is, as we have worked our way through, there has been a number of themes that he has has been working his way through, and so I'll summarize that in just a little bit. But we're going to talk about liberty again. We we began talking about it last week, and then we will uh, continue it next week. The subject of liberty, because Paul is, spends a significant amount of time on certain subjects, and and the idea of liberty is one that he really develops quite a bit here, and there's a, there's a good reason for that. Hopefully we'll wrap that up together next week as we step back and summarize why, why spend so much time talking about liberty. He had one of the strangest running styles of any Olympic champion. His head came up and backwards as he ran. His knees came uh, way too high as well, um, but the truth is he could run like the wind. He had the ability to run for a sustained period of time. And actually, unlike most runners, could get faster the longer the race went. He was expected to finish well behind the Americans in 1924 when he competed in Paris. At that time, the Americans had the best runners in the world at the 100, 200, and 400 meter events. He actually was more of a 100 and 200 uh, meter runner but because of his Christian faith, he refused to run the qualifying heats uh, of those events which were run on a Sunday. So he entered the 400, an event that he had only run in once as a competitor. And everyone thought he would not even, not even last. He's a sprinter. He's not a, he's not a distance runner of any kind. And his qualifying times were okay. They weren't outstanding. But when the gun went off on that final race, he took off like a rifle shot. He beat the best in a world record time and took home the gold medal for, uh, from France by almost 10 meters. Eric uh, Little's story is the kind of told in a, in a loose kind of fashion in the movie Chariots of Fire, retold way back in the early 80s. But his real race was only just beginning. Where Chariots of Fire leaves off, the rest of his story is so much better than the story of an Olympic champion almost 100 years ago. His parents were missionaries in China. They were sent by the London Missionary uh, Society. They were from Scotland. And he grew up as a missionary kid in China. And he felt God's call to China as well. So he went. He abandoned all the lucrative deals that he could have had in the, in the roaring 20s, all the money he could have made in uh, Europe, uh, hawking uh, all of their goods, as many uh, Olympic champions did back then. And he moved to England as a single man, was not married, moved to China. And God used him mightily there. Found a wife there, got married, had kids, and when China uh, was invaded by Japan, he stayed. He was imprisoned. And God used him in that prison to be a blessing to other prisoners as well as to the guards. He was called the camp pastor because that was his role there. 
And the story goes, uh, as the story is told of Eric Little's life, he died of a brain tumor in 1945 while in prison, never seeing his youngest child. His passion in life, as he tells it, was not to be the best runner in a race. And he was good. He was world champion good. His passion in life was to be the best pastor and missionary, to be used of God in mighty ways. In fact, the communist Chinese government erected a statute of him running to honor his love and commitment to the Chinese people. What a story. And we think of Chariots of Fire, you hear the music, right, and the slow motion running, and it was such a dynamic movie, and it won a ton of awards when it came out. And yet, running that is so minuscule compared to the rest of his life and what he gave up willingly. He ran well. We're going to think about liberty today with the idea of running well and how liberty ties into that and the, the, the perspective of, of, of 1 Corinthians 9. There's some powerful verses that are that you're familiar, themes that are familiar to you as far as being all things to all men and running in such a way to not disqualify himself and those kind of things. We're going to pick all that up, but, it, but sometimes we just pick those verses up and, and we just preach little snippets of, of this chapter. And yet, the whole chapter is powerful. Is a powerful argument that Paul makes about this idea of liberty, using liberty in our lives to run well. As we begin looking at this, the overall theme of the book is, of both books really, is that we are to be who we already are. As Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, They've got a number of issues. They're, they're a problem church. They've got all kinds of things that, that, that were wrong with them. But he begins, begins the book saying, listen, we are who we are, right? We are saints. We are holy. Not because of what we've done. We're saints and holy because of who God has declared us to be. That if we belong to him, that is who we are. And, and from there, he, he uses that as a springboard over the next, really, two books to tell them, listen, this is who we are. We're holy, we're saints, we're called by God, so let's start acting like it. Let's start operating as if we truly are saints because that's who we really are. That we are rescued by God's grace through Jesus. And as a result of that, that should impact how we get along with each other inside the church, how we get along with those outside the church, what our conduct should be like uh, as we live our lives. We are to, to act like we're already declared to be. So we pursue unity with one another. Unity, not just for the sake of unity, but we're united together under the cross of Christ and under his word. That that's what unites us together, not our, our nationality, not our political preferences, not our social standing, but we're united together because Jesus died for all of us and he's given us his word and we're united together underneath that. We're united together because we are all servants of Christ. He has called all of us to serve him and to serve one another. And as a result of being called together, of being united together under the cross and under his word and remembering that we're servants of God, he, he, he begins a series of, of a section dealing with morality, of how we're supposed to live, the choices that we're to make. That morality comes um, to, to us in our interaction with each other and that we should have morals when we're dealing with finances and when, when dealing with each other and morality when it comes to... to to, to sex inside of marriage and, and all of those things that, and marriage questions that he looked at 
And there's a number of questions that he's been answering. And the question that was asked at the beginning of, of chapter 8 um, that we kind of have to read in, he says, concerning things offered to idols. And, and he takes that idea of things offered to idols and he, and he really broadens it out into this concept of liberty. Now, liberty is those areas that the Bible doesn't address specifically or may address it in a, in a, in a, in a glancing kind of way. Liberty is a, it's kind of a broad subject. We, we would call it perhaps our gray areas today, the, the things, the debatable issues that, that one Christian might hold strongly to and another might not hold strongly to. The Bible you know, says very clearly certain things like adultery is always wrong. That's not a gray area. Murder is wrong. That's always a gray area. So we're dealing with other issues that the Bible doesn't specifically address. In the context of Corinth, as he looks at it in chapter 8, and he'll pick it back up in chapter 10, is this, is this idea of things that have been offered to idols, meat that have been offered to idols. As we talked about last week, most of us, probably maybe none of us, you know, come from a culture, but maybe some do, where, where there's actual idol worship. There's something on a wall in a home maybe that you grew up in that you, you remember bowing down and worshiping it or bringing food offer, offerings to it. You know, that's not a Western culture thing, and most of us have probably been in America long enough that that's just not a, a part of our culture. But, but, it, but there are parts of it, right? You drive down the other end of town, uh, you'll see a great big Buddha. That's something that they, they will regularly bring food offerings to that idol down there. Um, uh, there are, are parts of culture that, that certainly still do that. And, and I, I mentioned last week that, that we're actually the minority. Most of the world still does have idols that they fall down and worship. But we ourselves are prone to idol worship. We just don't have carved images that we put on a wall. We have other things that we put in the place of God. And an idol, as we defined it last week, is anything that replaces God. They can be good things, they can be harmful things. But anything that replaces God that we begin to worship becomes an idol. And so Paul broadens this idea of things offered to idols uh, into this subject of liberty. And in the, the, the idea, as we left off last week, as we looked at the end of chapter 8, he says, listen, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to exercise my liberty in any way that I might cause a stumbling block to somebody else, cause them to trip up and to fall down and to, to lose their way. And so that's where we're going to pick up as we get into chapter 9. We, you and I must choose to exercise liberty or sin will control our decisions. Something is always going to control us. After he's asked this series of questions and this idea of, 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 of liberty has come up, he begins kind of a strange, you know, if you remember um, the chapter and verse division is something relatively new. Right? If, you, if you get some old ancient Greek texts and you were to look at them, and certainly some Hebrew text, you would not be able to say, you know, well, Paul wrote you know, chapter 8 and he took a break and he started chapter 9 uh, you know, and he wrote the next 27 verses. Remember, this was all one letter, just like you and I would write a letter to, to a family member. It was one letter that he wrote. And so, so we go from chapter 8 to chapter 9, even though it's broken down for our references in our Bibles, Paul was flowing from the argument in chapter 8 right into chapter 9. And so he picks up with the therefore, chapter 8, verse 13, therefore, food causes my brother to stumble. I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So that's the, that's the whole idea of liberty. Let's go right into chapter, chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Are you, so, so think about reading this together, right? He says, I will never, I'll never do anything to cause my brother to stumble but am I free? Am I not an apostle? 
Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not a, a, if, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship to the Lord. My defense as to those who examine me is this: Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking, of, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking together for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endured all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred service eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. To what are we entitled? When it comes to liberty, certainly as Americans, we understand entitlement. Right, in, in one of our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, right, that, that all men are endowed with certain inalienable rights. You remember, remember that phrase from, from history class, and among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The, the founding fathers instilled into our culture this idea that we are entitled to certain things. And if Great Britain is not going to give us those things that we are entitled to, well, then we hereby declare our independence. We're done with you, England. We'll fight with a, a war with you. And we did. There was this idea that with liberty come certain entitlements, certain privileges. We don't like the word entitlements. It's kind of a loaded negative term oftentimes, so we'll just use the word privilege. To what is it that we are privileged? What is it that we should have the right and obligation to, to have? Well, Paul begins this idea as he's moved from, listen, I want to be a stumbling block. We have really kind of a counterbalance here. There's this, this argument that he's making. He says, I'm not going to cause a stumbling block. However, we can insert that word there. I've got a therefore, but then we have a however. All right, I'm not going to cause someone to stumble. However, let me balance the argument out. Paul was entitled to certain things, and he says, I'm going to make the, I'll make the argument for you. What were some of the things he said as we read through these verses he was entitled to? Well, first he was entitled to respect as an apostle. He was entitled to respect as an apostle. And we read these things and we say, what was the argument? Why, why were there, why was there confusion? Well, I think if you would, back almost 2,000 years ago to the early church, it, there were some that had certainly stamps of approval on their life. We could think of the, of the 11 apostles, the disciples. We, we throw Judas out because he, he killed himself. But at least 11 of them, Jesus himself had personally selected right, and said, yes, you, you're my followers. Come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Walk with me. I'll send you out and we'll go to various places. And so some, some of the, the guys, Peter, James, John, could rightfully say, listen, here's my stamp of approval, my credential. Jesus himself called me when I was a fisherman. 
And he, he himself commissioned me. We could add to that Matthias. We could go to chapter 1 of Acts and we would say that there was a process that the early church went through to select Judas's replacement. All right, they prayed over uh, the two candidates that they had. They had some criteria. One of them was someone who had been with us from the very beginning, someone who had been an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. And so there was a, a criteria. And so, so you could say, all right, Matthias, even though he, he wasn't part of the Jesus-approved group, was part of the early church-approved group. From here, where do you get authority? Well, Paul would make the argument that he himself, because he was certainly personally commissioned by Jesus, had the authority of apostolic, uh, apostolic authority. Now, we, we move forward 2,000 years. Are there any apostles left? Well, some churches have the office of apostle. The Catholic Church certainly sees the Pope as an extension of Peter, that the office of, of Peter has been passed down, apostolic office has been passed down. But, but by and large, most of the church does not have the have the office of apostle today. That This was a very special, unique period of time. And, and so Paul, as he is writing them, he says, one of the things that, that I'm entitled to is respect as an apostle. Now the word apostle simply just means a sent one. There was a generic idea that all of us, if we have, been trust, if we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, are sent ones. He sends us out into the world to be a gospel shares, the places we shop, where we live, who our family and friends are, where our work uh, mates, all of those things are, are part of our sending out, where he sends us out. And, and so we would think all of us are apostles with a little a. The apostle here, though, the apostle Paul, is, is more of the big A, right? This is the, this is the, the commission special technical ones, the technical sense of, of the early church leaders. And Paul says, listen, I, I, I'm an apostle. In fact, the proof of my apostolic authority, not only have I seen Jesus, but you, Corinthian believers, you yourselves are proof of my calling. At least the Corinthians should give testimony to his calling from God. How so? Because they, remember, he was there in their midst. He ministered in their midst for 18 months. And he's, in essence, he's saying to the Corinthian church, he's saying, listen, you are the seal or the proof of authenticity. You are the stamp on my life that I am genuine and real. Now this theme will be picked up in, chap, in, in the second book that we'll, we'll look at later in the fall, but, but because this idea of authority will come up once again with, this, with the church. Because some of them were challenging his authority. It's going to get worse. And he says in verse, in verse 3, he says, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Some were challenging his authority in the church. Paul was entitled to, res to respect, but there were some that were challenging it. Unfortunately, unfortunately, clergy examination is an ongoing issue in many churches today. <clears throat> By now, you would think that we would have somehow figured out some kind of tests to figure out who's authentic and who's false. But the truth is, is that we still, we still struggle just as much as, as, as the early church did with, with figuring out who, is really, who really is, is authentic here. Keep your finger here and look in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, we, we have uh, one of Jesus' last um, uh, uh, sermons that he is preaching. It's oftentimes called the Olivet Discourse. And uh, in, at, right towards the end of the message, uh, Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, 
And Jesus, as he's wrapping up, says this, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, all the nations will be gathered before him, he will separate them from one another, the sheep and the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right, the goats on the left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was, for I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And then the righteous will answer and say, Lord, when did we do these things? All right, so this conversation goes on. He says, when did we see, do all these things to you? And he says, when you did it to the least of mine, you did it to me. And then the other group, he will ask the very same question. He'll ask the same questions, but from the opposite side. He say, "Not come to me, but depart from me, get away from me." Because I was hungry and I was naked and I was thirsty, and you you didn't provide for my needs. And he will say, "When did we do these things? Or when did we?" Uh, and he says in verse forty-five, "Truly, I say to you, the extent that you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me." There is this element, this, this idea that, there are, that there, are, there are should be some kind of tests. Right? Then when we look at someone's life, we say, well, there's someone who, who feeds and, and what have you. But, but what Jesus is saying here in a way of what's yet to come, that, that what Jesus examines and, and approves of as his are different than our own standards. Right? And we look at, Men, we say, well, that's a gifted speaker. That's a gifted administrator. That's a popular person. Of course, they're going to be a, they must be a great pastor. Look at all the people that are behind them. Look at all the people that are following them. And Jesus, in, in his evaluation, says, listen, how I evaluate and what I do is different than how you do it and you evaluate. In fact, skip forward to one of the first messages Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 <clears throat> In verse 15, he says this, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And what he's saying is, listen, on the outside, they're going to look good. They're going to look like they are really sheep, but inside they're not. He says, You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorns, uh, thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles. So every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree bears bad fruit. You will know them by their fruits. Some false teachers are exposed by what they do. Some false teachers are exposed by what they do. And we'll have opportunity to see that in this lifetime. Now, what is interesting is this in Matthew 7, is Jesus referring to the, the fruits being exposed on this side of glory or on the next. He doesn't really say. But this is what I do know is that in my experience of my short life is that there are some people that if you watch them long enough, if you, if you observe their ministry, if you're part of their ministry, eventually their true character shows. Eventually what they do tells you what kind of character they are. Not always, but sometimes it does. Time has a, has a way of exposing those kind of things. Some people are exposed by what they do. Some people are exposed as false teachers, by what they teach. And 2 Peter, 2 Peter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, 
who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who, brought, who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not sleep. Some are exposed by what they teach. You know, sometimes it's, it's hard to, to, to sit and listen to somebody or read their writing and be discerning. But God has given us great tools. He's given us his word. Right? We should be like the Bereans when we're listening to someone preach. Our Bibles should be open. We should be saying, is that really what God's word says? Or going back and, and examining that at your, in your own home to say, let me read through these notes and make sure that I, I wasn't sitting under false teaching. Or the books that I'm reading or the, the preachers that I'm hearing, is, does it check out? Because some are exposed by what they teach. It, it does not take long for us to understand false teaching if we are in God's word and sensitive to his spirit. Some are exposed by who they become. Some are exposed by who they become. In Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, it says, not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance proven character, proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Some are exposed as false by who they become. Who they become. Now, what's interesting about all of these, about exposure by what they do or what they teach or who they become, is that time is what's important. In fact, one of the things that, that Paul says as he's, talk, as he's talking to Timothy is to make sure you don't quickly uh, and, embrace somebody. To make sure that they've been examined from the outside. Make sure that their life you know, has, has been proven. And oftentimes we, we say, well, you know what, they're willing. We'll just stick them in a ministry. Or, you know, they're pretty eloquent. You know, they may, they may not teach everything right, but, but they can tell a great story, so let's put them in a place of ministry. Some can slip through the cracks and fool absolutely everyone, but God is never fooled. God is never fooled. This idea of examination, sometimes it's deserved, right? Sometimes it's deserved because they are faults. And the trials and tribulations they go through uh, are, are right and good. There have always been problem leaders from the very beginning. Leadership is not to simply be followed blindly because, well, that's the pastor or that's the apostle or the missionary or whatever your title is. Right? The, the leadership is not to be followed blindly. But sometimes this examination is sinful because leadership is to be followed, not blindly, but it is to be followed. Paul was dealing with a group whose influence will continue to grow into this, to the second book that will continue to challenge him. Every time he makes a decision or, 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 or speaks truth into their lives, there's somebody who is kind of bucking up against it. They're opposed to absolutely everything that he said. And he, and he says, listen, I'm unafraid. I'm unafraid to be examined. The word examine here simply means to be judged beforehand. He says, go ahead. My life's an open book. I've got nothing to hide. Examine me as, long as, as much as you want to examine me. I'm okay. My defense to those who examine me is this, I've got the right. He was unafraid of being examined. He had the right, though, to be compensated. He said, we have the right to take along a believing wife, don't we? The series of questions as they're asked, by the way, in Greek, is assuming that all these answers are Yes. Right, that's the underlying assumption. And we'd have to, you know, as we respond, do we have a right to eat and drink? Yes. Do we have a right to take along a believing wife, even like the rest of the apostles do? Yes. 
The other apostles took along wives. Paul's ministry probably would have been hindered with a wife. It's not that he didn't long for companionship. Think about his ministry. He'll talk about this twice here in First and Second Corinthians, about how many times he was beaten, how many times he was forsaken, and how many times he was shipwrecked. Think about the stress on his own life if, if as he's getting beat, beaten, he's thinking about who's going to take care of my wife? As he's being uh, you know, th- thrown, uh, thrown into prison to think about what's going to happen to my kids? Who's going to care for them? And so, so he said, listen, I have the right to have a wife, but I've chosen not to. Peter and the other apostles were married. Paul had the right to be married, but chose singleness. That's, we talked about that in chapter 7 as we looked at marriage. Now some take this passage as he talks about wife to say that, that this means that, that the church should factor in family when it comes to compensation. That, that Paul was, as he's talking about, about what he was provided for him, that, that if a, a pastor is married, if a pastor has a large family, that the church should factor that in. As they're, as they're looking at compensation for him. Um, to take along, quite literally, means to carry about, carry about one in one's company, that it's a true companion. Is, there, is, there, is being married beneficial to ministry? Of course it is. Right? Is, is, there, is there benefits to the right person of being single? Of course there was, and Paul says, listen, I, I could have I been married. chose not to. I chose singleness. That was a benefit to, to us to the ministry, but Paul had the right to be married but chose singleness. The other apostles did receive compensation. He said, he said, he said the other apostles didn't, have, didn't refrain from work, had the right to refrain from working. Now, there's not, there's not what he's not saying here. He's not throwing all the guys under the bus, right? He's not saying they're lazy. I'm the only one working here. Sometimes we, we can read into, into what we want to read into. That's not what he's saying here. Paul and Barnabas were were in ministry, though, as vocational ministers. The book of Acts describes what they would do. Paul says, I would go in. I was a tent maker. That was my ministry, my job. I would go in as a tent maker, and I would work, for, I would work, on, work a full-time job, but I would work building up the church. The other apostles received compensation. He says, who at any time, as a soldier, who at any time serves as a soldier, at his own expense, who plants a vineyard, does not eat, who tends a flock, does not use the milk of the flock. And he's just using a couple of metaphors here to talk about being fairly compensated for the work that they do. He says, he says soldiers don't prepare to fight and work other jobs. Farmers enjoy the food of, that they're bringing in. Herdsmen use the milk from the flocks. This idea that this is just a, this is universal. This is just a, a general truism. Paul and Barnabas were in the minority as vocational ministers. It seems as what he is saying here is that John, Peter, James, the others, as they were working that the churches were supporting them, but Paul and Barnabas chose not to engage in that. A couple other illustrations he uses here to talk about compensation. He says in verses 8 through 11, he uses this, this illustration which is drawn from Deuteronomy chapter 25 about not muzzling the ox. Now, most of us aren't farmers in the sense of using oxen. I don't think any of us are, are Amish or coming from an Amish background, but the, the idea here is, is that the oxen, as they, are, as they are working, were allowed to eat. You didn't starve them to death. <clears throat> oxen were allowed to eat while they worked. And he's going to use that, and he says, was that for the benefit of the ox? Well, their currency is a little different from ours. If God cared for them, though, enough to and put it in the law 
that when the ox is working, you need to, you need to feed him. He says, doesn't he care for us much more than those, those ox? If that was the law for, for when, you were, when you were taking care of your farm, shouldn't you take care of those in leadership in the same way? Those who, he goes, continues on, he says, those who put in and those who harvest do so in the hope that they can eat. You know, I planted my garden a couple weeks ago. Not because I like to have dirty fingernails for a while. Because I hope that we'll have some tomatoes and some cucumbers at the end of the summer. Right? We understand that, right? That when we, we do the work, whether we plant flowers or we prune trees or whatever it is, we want the benefits that come with that. We, we just don't do it just for the, for the fun of it. Paul has used the farmer analogy already to describe his work. He used that early on. Remember, he said some watered, some sowed. You know, God is the one who caused the increase. And so he's just kind of carrying that analogy here into chapter 9. And what he's really saying is this. We earned the right to get a reward for the work that we did. We, that was what we were entitled to. That was a privilege that should have come our way. Other churches have, been, have generously provided for Paul. Some even did it while he was there in Corinth. Others would send follow-on gifts after he left a place. But Paul said, listen, we have we the right, we were entitled to get compensation for what we did. Others shared the right over you, do we not more? Others got compensated, maybe Apollos, maybe others, we don't know. Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endured all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred service eat the food of the temple, those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. He had the right to compensation, but endured not receiving it. He had the right, but, did, but endured not receiving it. He seemed willing to take the gifts, but would never ask for it. He, so he worked with his hands. Two illustrations further that he uses to kind of back up his case here. He says, well, this is in the priests, when they were, take, they were taken care of by the sacrifice. Now, this was both in the Greek world as well as in the Hebrew world. Right? Both the Greeks and the Hebrews, the priests earned money or, or earned food and, and were taken care of because of the sacrifices that were brought in. And Jesus himself had commanded that pastors or were leaders, religious leaders, were to be taken care of uh, by the church. And this was, he draws this from Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sent the 70 out. And so he has made this whole argument. He says, listen, I have the right. We, were, we had the privilege of getting income from you. However, in verses 15 and 18, we see him using his liberty to not get compensated from them. He says, but I have used none of these things. The, these things here are all the excuses, are all the reasons, better than excuses, all the reasons why I should have been paid, right? that God commanded it was in the law, that these things were, were what we were, you know, that God, you know, even, even the oxen, he, he decreed it in nature, that these things, I should have, I, I could have had the right. He says, but none of, I didn't use any of those things. And I'm not writing these things so that it will be done in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For I preach the gospel. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. I, for if I did this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right to the gospel. Paul voluntarily 
voluntarily rejected what was his right or what was his due. He was entitled to compensation, but he did not claim that entitlement. It was rightfully his to claim, but he voluntarily chose not to claim it. So what we see here in this chapter is this. We see a living illustration of liberty, of him choosing not to become a stumbling block to somebody else. So what we see in chapter 9 is he says at the end of chapter 8, listen, I will not become a stumbling block to anybody else. If meat is what causes someone to, be, to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. I will do whatever is necessary to not cause a stumbling block. And so chapter 9 then becomes his own personal illustration. Well, this is, this is how it looks in my life. This is how I am not a stumbling block. And he says, listen, I was entitled. I, verse, verse 15 verses, I was entitled to get compensation from you for all the work that I did in your midst, but I didn't demand it. His pattern was the same in, uh, in all the churches that he planted. In First Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, he says, listen, when we were in your midst, we worked hard not to be a burden to anyone else. And in Second chapter, Second Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, we made sure that we paid our own way. Right? We didn't eat any man's bread. But after he left Thessalonica, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we find they had sent him a gift. But while he was there, ministering, he did not draw a salary. And they freely supported him. And so, uh, so as Paul went from place to place, yes, he did receive gifts that would come in and help him with, his, with his, his finances. But while he was at any place, Corinth, Thessalonica, these other places, the, the impression that we get here is, is that he didn't draw a salary. He was not writing to fix it either. He says, let me make it clear, right? I'm not writing this, you know, so you can write me a backdated check like, oh yeah, sorry, we forgot to pay you. He's making it clear. It was an illustration. It was not a, a passive-aggressive guilt trip for some money that they, that they should have owed him. He did not want, though, the appearance when it came to presenting the gospel of a salesman or a con man. As an evangelist, introducing, introducing people to the gospel, that kind of ministry is different than established work. Think of a Think of it in our, in our day-to-day, right? Some of you are familiar with street preachers. A street preacher with a hat out taking an offering is a lot different than a street preacher without a hat, right? Because if you see the hat, just like when you see the guy strumming his guitar with the open case, you know that, yes, he's providing you some entertainment, but he's really hoping you'll throw some dollars in or buy his, you know, really bad CD that's available too. We understand that. We understand that when the, the hat is there, the guitar case is open, or the violin case is there, that, that yes, they're providing something that's nice and there's a benefit to us, but they also want some compensation for it. And so what Paul is saying here, that, listen, my ministry as an evangelist, my ministry as somebody who was penetrating a culture with the gospel, that never, had never heard about Jesus, that didn't know who he was, that had, didn't have any church presence. When I went from place to place, he said, I went in as an evangelist, not with my hat in my hand, not with the offering plate open, but I went in a way so that people would understand the gospel and not as something to be, that was being sold to them, not as a product that they needed to acquire. So I didn't want the appearance of that salesman. So I had the right to it. I ministered to you, but I did not want you to come and think that the gospel was something that you could purchase for yourself. 
that if I somehow give some offering to the church, that somehow God will be happy with me and that I'll earn my salvation in this way. It was the gospel itself that compelled him, not money. He said, I I was not doing this for compensation. God took care of me. God met my needs. True shepherds serve willingly. Hirelings fleece the sheep. Right? Hirelings are there to see what they can get, what they can wring out of the church. His calling, his ministry was not based upon his skills. It was based upon God working through him. Sadly, as we think of ministry today, too many in pastoral ministry base their call upon compensation packages. If God sends you to a place, he will meet your needs. Now I know we need to provide for our families. God has an expectation for us. But who's really providing for us? Is it us or is it God? I give you two illustrations. One is of my dad. He'll be here next week, so I can talk about him this week, and just don't tell him I talk about him next week. The church that they retired from after 30 years of ministry, right? They went there with $6,000 annual salary, right? With four kids at home because God called them there. He drove bus, still driving bus, he helped build houses, he mowed yards. He did whatever he could to provide for his family. But God called him there. It was not based upon compensation. There were other churches that would have paid him more. And to me, I I hold him in high esteem because of that. Because he went based on the call of God. If God calls us, and God, God will provide for us. And sometimes we think, I don't know how. I don't know where it's going to come from. This is Paul's attitude. He says, you know what? I could have demanded, all right, I gave you spiritual services. I was there for you. In our vernacular, we'd say, I was, did the weddings. I did the funerals. I did the hospital calls. I, I prayed for you. I, I preached every week. I, you know, you owe me money. He said, I, I could have demanded that for services rendered. But you know what? God met my needs. And I trusted in him. God was in it. God called me into it. Let me give you another side of this coin. I, I was at a, a birthday party a number of years ago, probably about 15 years ago, and uh, there was a young guy getting out of seminary at this party, and he was deciding between three churches. And he was evaluating them all on the compensation package. And you know, it's easy, it's easy to say, okay, well, we shouldn't do that. But you know what? We're all prone dependent upon the resources of life. And we get comfortable. Paul says, listen, the gospel is what compelled me to ministry. I, I, could have, I had the right. I, I, could, have, I could have done that. But, but I chose not to do that. And in fact, he's, he goes on, he says, woe is me, or I'm accursed if I don't preach. I'm so compelled to do this that, that you know, compensation, that doesn't even factor in. He had received this stewardship. It was a gift that had come from God. The church's responsibility for it was... Uh, was the church, the church was responsible for their care of him. All right? He was responsible for his care of them. And when we, we think about compensation, about going from this ministry or that church to another, and compensation comes into it, what we've done is we've crossed the two over. Where we think my responsibility is, is to care for me, and their responsibility is to care for me too. Paul says, no, my job was to care for you, 
you had a responsibility to care for me. I didn't ask for it. I didn't exercise it. But I want to be a good steward of the things that I was responsible for. <clears throat> Each of us, when we stand before the Lord, will give an account for how, how we have taken care of our job. And, and when we confuse the two, what happens is then pride and covetousness and materialism begins to well up and it can get very convoluted. And Paul said, listen, I, I kept it as simple as I could. I, I was not there. I worked. I didn't ask for compensation. I didn't receive compensation. Paul did not want to sell the gospel. He could have, but he chose not to. And what we see here is his exercise of liberty. He says, all right, here's the illustration. So I don't want to be a stumbling block to anybody. So in order to not be a stumbling block to anybody, some may, some may see me as a con man, a street artist. He said, I made sure I didn't take anything from you, compensation. That's how I exercised, Paul said, that's how I exercised my liberty. And it freed him up to be a minister. And then that leads into this next section. He says, he says, he says I've... Um, so I've used none of these things that I could have. Uh, uh, you know, there's been a stewardship that's been entrusted to me with the result, verse 19, that I am free from all men. I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law is under the law, though not being myself under the law so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, as the without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. He became all things to all people. See, compensation would have tied him down to one ministry. If a church was providing for his needs, he was not free to say, you know what, I've got to go to Ephesus tomorrow. I've got to spend some time writing this letter to the churches that are in the province of Galatia. God is moving me towards Rome. I've got to get on a ship and go towards Rome because that's where he was being paid for. And there was a, there's a loyalty that comes with, with a ministry that, that compensates you. Compensation would have tied him down to one ministry. How so? Well, you know, you begin fear of losing an income. And when you begin to fear losing an income, it can dramatically alter a minister and his ministry. Uh, if you think, well, I don't have a lot of skills on the outside. If I get fired from my, my pastor job, I don't know how I'm going to feed my family. So if that's what they want me to do, that's what I'll do. If that's how they want me to speak, that's how I'll speak. If that's what they want me to, 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 to how they want me to, to run things, that's how I'll run things. Paul said, listen, by... By exercising liberty, by not taking compensation, I was free to, to do whatever I wanted to do and be whoever I wanted to be to whomever I wanted to minister to. There oftentimes comes with, with compensation, ministers are just as, 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 as susceptible as, as you are. You know, the idea of what if I lose my house, my salary? If I get fired, now I've got a reputation, so who's going to hire me? And, and it's possible in the, in the, in the wrong context for a, a pastor or a minister to minister differently based upon fear of what if. So Paul says, listen, I was free to minister to everybody. Jews, those under the law, those without the law. It didn't matter. I was free to minister to everybody. If, if Jews had simply provided for him, think of it this way. If the Jews were the ones, said, Paul, you're, you're with us. 
You're a fellow Jew. You're a Benjamite. You're a rabbi, right? You, you, you belong to us. Would he have been free to be able to say, you know what? My, my Greek neighbors invited me over t- for dinner and I'm going to go eat dinner with them. Wouldn't his obligation have been, well, I've got to keep kosher because my Jewish friends have provided for my salary and so I don't want to offend my Jewish friends who are paying my salary and so therefore I'm not going to go minister to the Greeks. And we could do the same thing the other way, right? If it was Greeks, you know, well, the Greeks are paying my salary. I can't keep kosher. I don't want to offend them. And so Paul said, listen, without taking compensation, I, I became free to all and in reality became slave to all. I, I was able to minister to everybody. Since I'm beholden to no one, I can be free to all. He wanted to be enslaved to the gospel itself. He said, that's the only thing that I want an obligation to, was to the gospel himself. He, he learned to navigate many cultures. Now, th- this does not mean that he was insincere. But it means that he was sincerely free to minister to others. He wasn't a chameleon, right? He wasn't like, oh, I'm Greek today, I'm Jewish tomorrow, I'm, I'm free to, you know, the next day. He's not saying that he was fake, But what he's saying is is that because money didn't have its hooks on me, compensation, I I could use my liberty, by using my liberty to not get compensated, it gave me liberty and freedom to become all things to all people. God had uniquely prepared him for ministry. But on the other side, he would probably make the argument, but you know what, Peter had a role to play, and John and, and James, God... They were answering the call. For them to be compensated was not a bad thing for them. That was the ministry that they were playing out. He knew he was not saving anyone, but was the conduit for God's saving work. He was, in essence, saying, I am willing to do whatever it takes to see someone come to Jesus. Money was not going to enslave him to one tribe. So by using his liberty to not be paid, it gave him more liberty to minister. He didn't want to be a stumbling block, and it would have been a stumbling block if you were, if you were, you know, Jewish, and you and you were the one that provided Paul money, and you said, Paul, why are you taking my money and going living like a Gentile? You've offended me. You've become a stumbling block to me. So Paul said, Listen, I just took the money out of the equation. I used my own liberty in this manner to not be a stumbling block to both Jews and Greeks, slaves, the freedmen, those who were under the law, those who weren't under the law. So I was able to become all things to all people. Now, in your, in your link group homework, I'm going to ask you one of the questions I asked you to think about is, what does that look like in our culture today? What does that look like where you work and where you live? How, how, what enslaves you and prevents you from being all things to all people so that by God's grace you might win some? All of us have issues in our own life. He goes on this idea of liberty, of being free to minister, the last verses. He says, Do not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Disciplining yourself to avoid disqualification. This is the other element of his liberty. He said money was not going to be a disqualifier for me, but neither was anything else. The Corinthian games, of course, is the context here. I've mentioned this before. It's sometimes called the Isthmian games, the Corinthian Isthmus. 
Um, but the, the Corinthian games were second only to the Olympic games in ancient Greece. All right, in Paul's day, he's actually writing to Corinth, so this was a big deal. This was a big cultural uh, reference to them. But the Corinthian games, unlike our games where, you know, our Olympic games was about a two-week, sometimes a three-week window where the games are, are held and each country sends their own athletes and they're selected a certain process, the Corinthian games were actually a year-long affair. Actual competition of competing in the Corinthian games required each person who was entering into that to make sure that they had fairly trained. So the training process as well as the competition, were all part of the Corinthian games. And so when a, a person was evaluated, they weren't just evaluated on who crossed the line first. It was also based on how did they train. Now, in our day-to-day, we would say, all right, we've got some similar things, right? We have athletes that are tested on a regular basis to make sure they're not taking illegal drugs, you know, that there's a, that there's a fair comparison between the athletes, that they're truly, you know, true, as true as we can make it. In Corinth, what they did is all of the training was required to be observed there at Corinth. So if you're going to be a runner, boxer, an athlete of any kind in the games, you trained for a year in Corinth and then you competed against each other. There are three different games that he mentions here out of the Corinthian games. And they had all kinds of, just like our Olympics, there were all kinds of events that they had. The three that he highlights are running, wrestling, and boxing. They were the the three sports highlighted by Paul here. He says, first of all, if, if you're going to be a runner, you know, you run with a goal in mind or you run with a purpose in mind. You don't just run. You don't just randomly run. Certainly if you run in a race, right, there's a course that you want to run. And then when I go for my runs, there's a certain goal I go to. I don't just wander. Right? It may seem like it at times, but there's a certain place you, you go to. I know from my house, if I'm running six miles that day, where I go. If I'm running a half marathon, I know where I go around town to get my half marathon distance in. There are certain targets that you reach and you run for. You run with a goal or in mind or purpose. When it's come to wrestling, the grappling here, wrestling required difficult training. The word that is used here about a buffeting, um, uh, the, the buffeting of the body here quite literally means to hit under your eye. And it's this idea of, of self-training, of beating your body up to prepare itself for, for competition. All right? Now, for me, you know, it's been a long time since I wrestled. High school was a long, long time ago. Um, but I had some kids a couple of years ago. We had to help set up for a girls' regional wrestling mat and match and so we had we're helping them roll mats out because we're you know soccer boys i like the hall stuff and so we had a bunch of some of my kids like ah come on coach perry i'll challenge you and i beat them handily why because they were less prepared than i was even though i was an old man wrestling to wrestle competitively requires difficult training it's not just something you say i'm going to wrestle today and you show up for a match and, and you go win the thing it requires a ton of training Boxing very similar to ours, right? He says, I box in such a way I don't, I don't beat the air. It's not, you know, shadow boxing. And what he's saying here is this, that proper training is integral to proper competition. But if we want to compete well, it requires us to have right training in. <clears throat> you know the difference between an athlete and a non-athlete? Athletes tell their bodies what to do. Non-athletes allow their bodies to tell them what to do. So an athlete tells their body that I need to get up early and train. 
that I'm going to go for a run this morning. An athlete tells its body, I know you're hungry, you're not eating right now. An athlete tells its body that you're going to train hard, even if you're sore and tired and, and don't feel like it. A non-athlete allows their body to say, you know, you're really hungry, you should eat that extra piece of pizza. A non-athlete's body says, yeah, you're kind of tired, why don't you take an extra long nap today? Or sleep in tomorrow? Or be lazy? So that's the difference between an athlete and a non-athlete. You might say, well, am I an athlete or a non-athlete? Well, do you obey your body? Does your body obey you? All of it requires proper training. Running, wrestling, boxing, these were just illustrations that Paul uses, this idea of discipline. The prize that they were running for was a wreath, and it was either made up, depending on the year, either of celery or pine boughs. All right? So we've all had Christmas trees. We know, you know it doesn't take very long for that thing to get brittle and dried up and brown. All right? Celery's even quicker, right? You know, a, a celery stalk, you think about that thing wrapped around your head, it's limp, little noodle disgusting, rotten thing. You know, that's what they were competing for. So they would train all year long for something that they would hang, literally hang on a wall and let it dry up and fall apart. Many competed, as he said, but only one won. There was only one winner. You trained for, for months and months and months, but there was only going to be one winner. But you still trained every single day. Here's the difference as his analogy breaks down. He says, you know what? In the, the Corinthian games, there's only one winner, but we all can win the race that we are on. There's not just one winner. Right? God doesn't looking at Prairie Baptist and say, well, I'm going to take one. Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? The truth is we can all be winners. But he says, whatever I'm doing, I want to compete in such a way that I myself will not be disqualified. He wants his liberty to function this way. Right? He, says, he says, I've used my liberty not to receive compensation. I use my liberty to reach all kinds of people but I need to balance it out with this spiritual discipline so that I'm not overemphasizing one or the other and I don't want to be disqualified. Now, in the Corinthian games, there are two ways to be disqualified. One was to not compete fairly. Each contest had rules that had to be, and courses to be followed, just like ours. Right? You, you can't, you can't you know, go sign up for the New York Marathon and take an Uber for a mile you know, 6 to 20. It doesn't work. You didn't follow the rules. You're going to be disqualified. You know, and you'll see that on your race form. DQ and probably banned from any other race run in New York because you didn't run in a proper way. Not competing fairly. The other way was uh, that they could be disqualified was not training properly because the 10 months of training were part of the judging. You could be disqualified. You could run the race and finish and run the race fairly and, and squarely but not properly train and you would be disqualified. So how, how does Paul blend that into, into us is this, that you know, it's possible for us to use our liberty in a way that is disqualifying for us as an excuse for sin, as an excuse for abusing others. Disqualification, they understood, the Corinthians understood what disqualification was. They, they certainly understood, and so do we. Chapter 9, Paul has used himself here as an illustration of using our Christian liberty. He could have been compensated by the church. He made that case in very clear detail. He says, you know what? I, could, I, I should have been compensated. 
by, by all, all definition from natural law to God's law and everything in between, I should have been compensated. But I chose not to be compensated. The other apostles were. It was, it was the way God designed it. They were blessed in their, it, by that ministry. But his ministry was one he did not want to be obligated or appear to be a con man or a salesman. He said, I wanted the gospel itself to shine forward. So I chose not, in my liberty, chose not to be compensated. He uses liberty to forgo his pay. And this exercise of his liberty allowed him allegiance to no one but the gospel itself. He was beholden to no one but Jesus. So he could minister freely to all, and he did. That was how he exercised his liberty. He would say, listen, this is how I exercise my liberty, but others did it a different way. Paul did it his way. Peter did it his way. In his exercise of liberty, though, as he ministered, it was still possible for him to be disqualified, so he wanted to minister in such a way to avoid disqualification. Simply declaring liberty or ministry was not enough. He had to purpose daily to run well and avoid failure. The lesson for us is this, so do you and I. You know, we have to get up every day and say, I do not want to disqualify myself today. I don't want to be disqualified as a dad, as a husband, as a pastor, as an employee, as a citizen. All the realms that we live under, it's possible for us to to be disqualified in. It's possible for us to ruin our marriages. It's possible for us to ruin our ministries. It's possible for us to get fired from our job for something that we did. We understand disqualification. In fact, oftentimes our behavior is, is shaped by, okay, I better not do this, or my boss is not going to be happy with me. I better show up for work tomorrow, right? Or, or I better not do this, or my wife's not going to be happy with me, and I'll be at the Prairie Hotel tonight, right? And so we in our minds think about things all the time, about, okay, I better not do this, I better not do this. Do we think about that when it comes to Christian liberty? That I am going to, broadening it back out, I'm going to make sure that my neighbors my, my co-workers, my unsafe family, my friends, that they're not looking at my life and saying, that guy's disqualified, he's a liar, I don't believe anything he's saying. Because their lives didn't back up what he was saying. And Paul said, listen, I made sure I was not beholden anybody but the gospel. I made sure that even in my liberty, the choices that I made, that I could have been compensated, but I chose not to be compensated so that I could minister to everybody. So think about your own life, how you run. All of us are on this course called life. All of us will pass before the Bema, which was the the judgment seat. The judges stand at the finish line of the races and the competition. All of us are going to pass before that Bema. So what will the judge say for you? Boy, you ran the race well, but you, you failed in the qualification process. You qualified okay, but you straight from the course. It's possible for all of us to win the race, so will we? Will we exercise our liberty like Paul did? 